0: Of God's Word in hand, turning with me to Acts chapter nine. Today we will be studying together verses one through nine. Uh, before I before I read, let me run out here and get my notes real quick. Yeah, you don't want me up here without these. So Acts chapter nine, verses one through nine, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Here now, the Word of God. <laughs> So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This ends the reading. think God was holy, inerrant, and inspired word. May he write his eternal truths upon our hearts. Uh, a little while ago, I was with a friend and we were reminiscing about his wedding day. Uh, my friend is from my hometown. We went to high school together Raymond, uh, Mississippi, uh, but he married a young girl from North Carolina, and as as yes, usually goes, they decided to get married a bit closer to her home there in Asheville, North Carolina, certainly worse places um, to be married. Uh, but as we're talking about it, the thing that I, I probably remember most about his wedding was my drive to the wedding. Um, the drive from Raymond to Asheville is about a 10-hour drive. I left uh, in time to get there about an hour before the uh, uh, the rehearsal uh, began. Uh, but about two hours into the trip, I realized I forgot something extremely important, and that was the change of time zones. I was going to lose an hour. And so now I was no longer learning, running an hour early. I was running an hour behind. And so I set well, was probably a land speed record going through those mountain passes, white knuckling it, pedal to the metal the entire way. But I made it, I mean, just about a minute or two before we actually left to go to the rehearsal site. But I got there about the same time as my buddy's mom got there. Now, but here's the thing about his mom. She took a very different route than I did. Than I did. You see, his mom has a legitimate phobia of traveling on interstates or highways. And so she refuses to do it. And so she took nothing but the back roads to Asheville, North Carolina. And as I was talking to my buddy about this, I asked him, I said, well, how long did it take your mom to get there? Thinking that he would say something like 13 or 14 hours rather than the regular 10. I was not prepared for the answer that he gave me. It took his mom, not one, not two, but three days to get from Raymond, Mississippi to Asheville, North Carolina. And I've never laughed harder at anything in my entire life. Three days to take a 10-hour trip. But nonetheless, we both made it to the same place. Our journeys to Jesus Christ are all very different from one another. The past couple of weeks, we've been studying the, 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 the conversion story of the Ethiopian eunuch on the desert road. We look at his life and from a historical redemptive perspective, we are quite surprised that a person like that would become a child of God. He was not a Jew, he was a Gentile, and he wasn't just a Gentile, he was also a eunuch. He believed in the God of Israel, but he could not become an Israelite because, well, he, he could not receive the sign of circumcision. So from an ethnic, historic redemptive perspective, we might be a little bit surprised. But if we look at his life as an individual we really shouldn't be he was seeking after god he went he 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 rode in a chariot from ethiopia into jerusalem in order that he might worship god not from inside the temple but from the outskirts of the temple and actually i found this is a great proof of a spiritual of spiritual well-being in a person. It's one thing to worship God when we feel like we have to, when we feel like it's required of us. It's another thing to come and to worship God when it's not expected of us. But today we come to a, a different conversion, a very different conversion, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. When we look at him from a historical redemptive perspective, we're not surprised at all. He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee, but when we look at his life as an individual, we see that he is quite possibly the most surprising convert the church of Jesus Christ has ever received. But although Paul and the Ethiopian have very different experiences of conversion, They all end up in the same place, embracing Jesus Christ as both their Lord and their saviors. Your experiences are all very different and quite possibly unique. Maybe maybe your experience is more like the desert road of the Ethiopian eunuch where you're slowly but surely led to Christ by on the lap of your parents or sitting in the pew growing up in church or in Sunday school. Or maybe your experience is more like the Damascus this road experience of the Apostle Paul. Surely you didn't see Christ with your eyes and hear Christ audibly with your ears but nonetheless you lived a life either in just abject rebellion and hatred of God or maybe a life of apathy toward the means of grace and then all of a sudden in a moment boom you go to bed one night you wake up the next day you're a different person. You are made anew regardless of how you've come to Christ, regardless of the road that you've taken to get to the feet of Christ, what matters is that you all came to the same place, which is beneath the cross of Christ, loving and obeying the one who died for you. So this morning, let us begin by looking at this winding Damascus road that Paul takes to the cross of Christ. As I mentioned before, and we look at Paul from the viewpoint of a first century Jew, you may not be very surprised that he would become a Christian. He was a Jewish academic. He studied at the feet of the rabbi Gamaliel, who was, this is basically the first century Jewish equivalent of studying at Oxford, or Cambridge, or, or Harvard. Uh, G- uh, G- Galileo was considered the, the greatest mind within 1st first, within first century uh, Judaism. And Paul was his, obviously his star pupil. If you read through the letters of Paul, his academic mind comes pouring out. In the book of Romans alone, he quotes the Old Testament 58 times. And there's hundreds of allusions to other Old Testament texts. He was an academic. He had a mind for the Old Testament, but it wasn't just his mind. He wasn't just an academic. He was also a pietist. He was a Pharisee. The word Pharisee means law lover. For to be a Pharisee, it wasn't enough that you were able to quote Most, if not all of the 613 commands in the Old Testament, you had to live by those laws as well. And when that became too easy, you had to invent your own laws to put on top of the laws of God so that you could really show yourself to be the pietist that you were. This is when Jesus says in Matthew 5 that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. When he says that, he's not setting the bar low. He's setting the bar extremely high. It's as Paul says of himself in Galatians chapter 1 verse 14. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. That word zealous is a, is a very apt word for the, the life, of, life in Judaism of the Apostle Paul. He was zealous for the law. He was zealous for the traditions of his fathers, but that zealousy did not stop at his obedience. It carried on into his protecting of the traditions of his fathers. He would oppose anyone who would dare say anything against the traditions that he holds so dear. But that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did. He set himself up against the traditions that Paul was so zealous to keep and to protect. In Matthew chapter 23 alone, he pronounces seven woes or seven judgments against the scribes and the Pharisees and their traditions. I won't go through all of them, but here's just a couple of them. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte A proselyte, by the way, is someone who is fully converted to Judaism You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte And when he becomes a proselyte You make him twice as much a child of hell as you are yourself That's what Jesus said about the traditions of Paul's fathers that he was so zealous to perform and to protect. Being a Pharisee, you see, made Saul of Tarsus a particularly hard type of sinner to save. He was of the infamous class of sinner who does not know that he is a sinner. I cannot for the life of me remember who said this, but it bears a striking weight. The quote goes, it is no small thing to save a man from his sin, yet it is an even greater thing to save a man from his own righteousness. This is what Paul needed to be saved from. He did not see himself as being a sinner. He saw himself as being righteous in the sight of God because of all the good and all the law keeping and all the tithing that he had done throughout his life. Listen to how he describes this and what we read in our bulletins in Romans chapter 10 verses 1 through 4. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He had zeal, but not according to knowledge. If he had known the law, he would have known that the law was the hammer that God uses to break us of this natural bent toward thinking we're better than we are. That we're good enough. The law of God says you are not good enough. God does not require basic conformity to his law. He requires perfect and perpetual conformity to his law. Anything less is an abomination before him. As the prophet says, our best works are nothing more than filthy rags before God. You know who likes to hear that? No one apart from those who are born of the Spirit. There are none except for those who are born of the Spirit who glory in the truth that our best works are abominable before God. So Paul, like many before and after him, despised the truth of Christ's gospel. And he became zealous to see Christ put to death again through the murdering of his church, the people of the way, as Luke describes them uh, in, in Acts chapter 9. Well, look down with me in, uh, Luke, uh, in in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, Luke writes here that Paul was breathing threats and murder against the I guess the disciples of the Lord breathing threats. In the Greek, that word is literally translated as, as breathing in, breathing in threats. There's a couple of ways that we can interpret that, and I think they're, they're, they're both equally, equally right. One of us, you can think of it as, as Paul is animalistic, feral in his hatred of Christ and his church. It's like when a, when a bull breathes in and snorts before charging his enemy, that's what Paul is doing. An animalistic hate for Christ and his gospel. But there's another way that you can interpret this too. Is that it's as if his hatred for Christ, his, his threats and his murdering were, were so much a part of him. as if he was breathing in his life. The commentator Matthew Henry puts it this way. That when Paul was executing the name of Christ, he was breathing in his element. His element was hatred for Christ. Some people's unbeliefs take a more apathetic character than this. But there are still some whose unbelief spills over into this unbridled hatred that we see in Saul of Tarsus. It's as if they love hating Christ and his people. I've seen this for myself as being a teacher in, of all places, a Presbyterian covenantal school. One of the things that I would always encourage my students to do was to to ask questions because I wrecked my faith by not asking questions when I was in college. And so I always urge them, please ask questions. Even if you think it's tough. Even if you think that the question is somehow dishonoring to God, I promise it isn't. Ask the question. If I don't have the answer, I'll do my best to find the answer for you. And many of my students would take me up on this offer. But there was always this one student who would ask a question, but his, his, his tone was never you know, inquisitive. It was always accusatory. He would ask a question and then I, I couldn't get five seconds to do my answer. And he's staring at the walls. He didn't care what the answer to the question is. You know why? Because his question was his justification for not believing. Because he could not stand the church that he had been brought up in. He could not stand the gospel that was being proclaimed there in that class. And so he turned a deaf ear to it. He turned a a blind eye to it. And in the case of those who hate Christ in this way, the way that Paul hated the church, it may seem helpless, but there is good news here because the church is full of people who were at one time haters and enemies of God. And there is no greater example than Paul himself. Look at how Christ calls Paul to be his apostle, beginning there in verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus is revealing two things to Paul in in that section. First thing he's revealing is that Jesus is no mere man. He is God. There, when you read that the light was shining around him in the Greek, that is the Greek word that is usually used for lightning flashes. You know where you see that a lot in the Greek Old Testament? Whenever God reveals himself. Moses on Mount Sinai, flashes of light. Flashes of lightning, thunder. Christ is revealing his, his divine nature. This is why Paul, though he does not know that it is Jesus who is speaking to him, nonetheless says, who are you Lord. He did not know that it was Jesus, but he knew that whoever it was, their origins were divine. This is what Jesus reveals to him. But secondly, and I think probably most importantly, Christ reveals to Paul that rather than him being the persecutor of God's enemies, he was instead a persecutor of of God himself. Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now Paul's hatred of the church has given way to fear of the Lord of the church. John Calvin comments in his commentary that Paul had realized in an instant that the people who he had been murdering and throwing into prison were represented by the divine king. This would have obviously been a horrifying scenario to the apostle Paul, well, the soon-to-be apostle Paul. Rather than glorifying God, which is what he was seeking to do, he had been blaspheming him. But Paul's zeal for hate only serves to magnify Christ's zeal for mercy. And I want us to see the sovereign nature of this mercy in this text before us. Paul was seeking Christ so that he might persecute him and put his name to open shame. But when he, but when, we, when we come to verse four, we see that it was Christ who was seeking Paul not to do him harm, but in order that he might show him mercy. You see this. And just the way that Jesus calls to him, it says, Saul, Saul. It's very reminiscent in the way that Yahweh calls Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. Moses steps aside to see the sight of the burning bush. And a voice comes to him, Moses, Moses. It's a gentle, tender voice. He's calling Moses. He says, my people are in slavery. I'm going to use you. You're going to be my instrument to bring them out of the bondage and, uh, of slavery there in Egypt. That's exactly what Jesus is doing with the apostle Paul. Saul. Saul, my people across the world, my Gentile sheep, they're in bondage to sin and death, following after the prince of the, prince, the power of the air. You are going to be my instrument to go and to save them from that bondage. The mercy that Jesus shows to the apostle Paul is the mercy that he shows to us. You know how we know the gospel? Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament. He's the great defender of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was his mercy to his mercy to Paul is his mercy to us as well. But also notice that down in verse 7 we read that it was not Paul alone who heard the voice of Christ but it was also those who were with him. Luke writes in verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless hearing the voice but seeing no one. There were many who heard the voice of Christ, but there was only one who believed in Christ on that Damascus road. And the same is true for us. We all sit under the same word and some of us are brought slowly to Christ. Some of us are brought very quickly to Christ through the gospel, but others never believe. And at the first chance, they flee. They flee from his church. They flee from his word. A great example of this is a story that my dad told me when he was younger. He was part of a group there in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, where they partook in um, evangelism explosion. Uh, if you don't know what that is, it's a, a method of you know going out and sharing the gospel with, with people who do not know Christ. And he's part of this group, and they go to an apartment complex there in Jackson, and they go door door to door just knocking. And uh, most people just slam the door like just right in their face. As soon as they tell them what they're there to do, they're like, I ain't got time for that. And they just shut the door. Other people would invite them in, they would kind of go through their their explanation of the gospel, and then after it was over, and just, and just it just didn't matter. They didn't admit it matter to them. they didn't care. But the last p- apartment they went to, not on the door, a Chinese man, answers, and he invites them in and they talk to him. And when they started going through the gospel, the leader who was going through it, uh, the, the Chinese man stood up and he said, Stop! Stop! And he, he, he got up and he, he, he walks outside. And we're like, what in the world is this guy doing? A few minutes later, he comes back with dozens of other Chinese men, women, boys, and girls. And he sets them down at the feet of this, this leader and he says, Okay, right, now you tell them exactly what you told me. And I can't remember if it was every one of them or if it was most of them, but several of those boys and girls and men and women became Christians that day. The word that so many other people had rejected had become life for those select few. It's an illustration of what Jesus says in in Matthew 22 at the end of his parable of the wedding feast. Many are called, but few are chosen. There were many in that apartment complex who were called, but only a few who were chosen. There were many on that road to Damascus who were called, but there were few who were chosen. Friends, I I do not believe that in our churches that there are at least very many people who hate Christ and hate his church with the zeal that Saul of Tarsus hated. I mean, most people who hate the gospel and Christianity that much, they don't bother ever coming to church. But what I'm afraid of is that there are many people who fill our churches who are apathetic toward Christ. They go to church because it's just something that they do, it's a social club, it's where their buddies are. Here's the truth the pill of apathy is filled with poison. And it is every bit as deadly as a cancer of hate. The apathetic one is no less condemned than the one who hates. And this is what this is what worries me. This is what, what scares me as, 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 as a minister. How do I fight apathy? How do I fight people not caring? I, I can only do one thing is to urge you. Do not let the gospel pass you by. Do not let it fall on deaf ears. Do not turn a blind eye to the cross of Christ. Fix your eyes and fix your ears, your mind, your soul, your heart upon the cross. And do not forsake it. That is all I can do is to beg and to plead that you will receive christ paul was struck blind by the vision and voice of christ but in a very real and spiritual way for the first time he was truly seeing because he saw christ and this is where i want to finish this morning our roads to christ might look very different but when they bring us to christ what we see and how we react is always the same and i want to i want to give you three reactions that every Christian has to come into Christ that we see here in this text. The first one is we have the conviction of our sins before God. Our sins are before God. So many of us, when we sin against others, we we try to justify it by saying, well, they deserved it. They've done worse. They were mean to me first. It's just blame shifting. It's It's the oldest sin in the game. God goes to Adam there in the garden. He's like, "Who told you that you were naked?" And what's what's his answer? The woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit and told me to. He turns his attention to Eve. Eve, why'd you do that? Well, the, the the serpent, the serpent. He he tempted me. It's his fault. Blame shifting. Notice Jesus does not give Paul a chance to shift the blame here. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. This is the beginning of repentance. The realization that all of our sins are committed against the one who knew no sin. There is no justifying sin before a holy God and a holy Christ True repentance says with the psalmist in Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. The sins of others will not justify your sins because any sin is committed against the one who is enthroned. So that is the first reaction of all of those who are brought to the feet of Christ, the realization that our sins are before God. But the second reaction uh, to one being brought salvifically before Christ is a love for the gospel and for the church of Christ. This is something that we do not see taking place in our text today, but something that we will see as we continue to go through the life of Paul in the book of Acts, and something that just pervades all of his letters his love for the church and his love for Christ. The contrast between Paul's hatred for the gospel pre-conversion and his love for the gospel post-conversion is shocking. He goes from being a persecutor of the gospel to becoming its most impassioned herald. He goes from being from imprisoning others for their love of the gospel to being imprisoned for his own love for the gospel. He goes from murdering Christians for their belief in the gospel to laying down his own life for the sake of proclaiming the gospel. The man who hated Christ is now willing to be imprisoned and killed for Christ. Both the love of Christ and the love of the church are not things that are unique to Paul. They are common to all who possess the spirit of Christ. And then lastly, all who are brought to Christ are given a heart that is willing to obey. Jesus tells Paul to go to Damascus and to wait. That's exactly what he does. The rest of his life is a life lived in order to Try to obey the call that Christ had put upon his life. This does not mean that Christ's love for Paul was somehow conditioned upon Paul's obedience. The obedience of Paul was the fruit of Christ's love for him. You see, Christ died for us while we were still sinners because he loves those whom the Father gives into his care. But that love does not stop at our conversion That love does not stop with just forgiving you of your sins. It continues on throughout your life. You see, you're not simply saved from your sins. You're not simply forgiven of your sins. You are freed from your sins. Sin over the Christian has no dominion. It is Christ who has dominion. Christ loves you too much to allow you to continue into the sins for which he became condemned. It was your sin that held him there. How can you continue loving and living in those sins? The roads used by providence to bring us to Christ might all look very different, but they all bring us to the exact same place before the throne of glory and beauty and majesty and grace and forgiveness and newness of life the throne of the crucified and now reigning one the lord jesus christ it's as the saying corum deo live before the face of god our heavenly father we love and we thank you for your grace the grace that conquers apathy the grace that conquers hatred the grace that conquers distraction, the grace that smashes idols, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, shower us in his rich blessings. Do not let us turn a deaf ear or a blind eye to his cross, but let us see and let us glory in it. Let us not boast of ourselves, but if we boast, may it be in the cross of your son in whose name we pray. Amen.